Uh, so today's podcast is brought to you by Port City Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, located at 8 Greenleaf Woods Drive in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Uh, hit us up at portcitybjj at gmail.com. Come in and uh, try out some jiu-jitsu. Um, today's podcast was with a very special guest, codename Sam. If you're into uh, drunken shenanigans, blowing things up, and killing bad guys, you came to the right place. Rolling. Rolling. Welcome back to Sharp Iron Society. Scott's back. I'm back. Took it. Took a break. <laughs> took a break. Mostly because I was having my ass handed to me at work, but whatever. Derek's here, and we're sitting down with Sam. Hola. <laughs> From New Hampshire. Co- codename Sam. Codename Sam. <laughs> um. Yeah, all of a sudden it's uh it, it's it's fall again. Uh, last week it was super warm. Now it's like it's actually fall. It's actually cold today, which is odd. But yeah, whatever. It's, it's New, New Hampshire, Hampshire, man. It's New Hampshire. New land, the land of ice and snow. Suck it up, deal with it. We're north of the wall. <laughs> <laughs> that was a Game of Thrones reference for all you people that didn't know. If this mic, uh, if this mic were detached, I'd drop it. But it's attached. So uh, Sam, <laughs> Sam is sitting down with us. Um, why don't you explain to uh, the listeners why Sam needs a code name? Uh, well, actually, <laughs> Sam, do you want to go with this? Do you want to go like, like... No, knock it out of the park, man. That's all you. All right. So uh, Let's see how bad you fucked this up. <laughs> I can't wait to do wrong Donald Trump. Uh, so Sam is a Teams guy. Um, <laughs> so- Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Monitor vomiting there. It's absolutely uh, incorrect. Uh, I work for a living. <laughs> uh, Sam is actually uh, Army SF and um, a, a good personal friend of mine. And, and having him on here is 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 a is a great honor because he's still uh, active. Yeah, don't roll your eyes at me. <laughs> he's also very humble as well. Um, it's not true. <laughs> I just hide it. <laughs> we're being honest. Um, you've been in since you were eighteen. That's correct, eighteen. And uh, went in through the uh, Army X-ray program. Yep. And what's that? What's the Army X-ray yeah. program? So the Army had this great scheme that uh, you could go straight to being a Green Beret if you sign the dotted line. Lots of dudes did. And it worked out for some. Mostly it did not. They would got like overqualified guys to go to the infantry that were airborne qualified. So at 18, you sign your name and you go through the pipeline and you get a guarantee at going to selection. Doesn't mean you're going to make it, but you get a guarantee at a shot at it. Whereas in the past, before the 18 X-ray program, you usually had to do, I want to say, three years in a line unit before you had a, the opportunity to go to selection. So you had a lot of 18-year-old guys go straight to basic training, so infantry basic training. Then they'd go right to airborne school. Then they would go right to what was known as SOPC at the time. I don't know if they changed the name 
or if they still have it, but it's uh, the Special Operations Preparation and Conditioning course, which was like a pre-selection, and then you go to selection. So you were guaranteed that, uh, where you were guaranteed to get to SOPSI, and if you passed SOPSI, which was actually harder than selection, you could go to selection. That was the 18X-ray program. Interesting. So, I mean, like, what spurred you on to go into, uh, I mean, go into selection and go, go, just go all out instead of just, like, going, like, say, like, go Rangers or, or, or anything else? What, what exactly drove you towards? So SF has probably the, well, I would argue, without a doubt, the most multifaceted mission set in the entire military. So as an SF guy, you can be doing a ton of different things. And when you look at, when you take a step back and you look at real world problem solving, um, I think that no one does problem solving better than SF guys. So yeah, you could join the Rangers and they're great dudes. They do their job and they do it well, but it's a small facet to the overarching problem. Um, But we can do what they can do. You look at civil affairs, psychological operations, those guys have extremely important jobs as well, but we do a lot of that stuff also. So uh, I just like the fact that you were able to do so many different things in one job. That's why I did it. Awesome. And then uh, just, I mean, it, you might, I mean, like, there's a lot of people, it's like everybody, I'll go on a limb, it's like a lot of people know what, Navy SEALs, BUDS are, all that stuff, because there's so many guys that have written books about it, and there's so many guys that have put, out, put stuff out into the public, and there's, I mean, like, um, uh, Chris Kyle's book was, like, national bestseller, and yada, 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 so there's a lot of people that know all about those programs, but there's a lot of people that don't know. I mean, there's probably a great majority of people that don't even know much about DSF groups. So. Yeah, there's a there's an institutional difference there. Um, all shit talking aside, seals are good at what they do. Sometimes, uh, <laughs> <laughs> not always. <laughs> and they say what they do, like lifting weights, being physically fit. Um, <clears throat> they have a a institutional problem where they really want to promote themselves. Um, the most recent admiral for or rear admiral for the uh, Navy guys just basically told them to knock it off in a relatively formal uh, written statement. It said, stop writing books, stop partnering up with video games and film people and do your job. Uh, where SF does not have that problem. Institutionally, we're very uh, quiet. and also known as the quiet professionals, and it's for, uh, for a good reason. We really just want to do our job, do it well, train, and uh, go problem solve. We're not very good at self-promoting. That's not always in our best interest because we don't let uh, people in higher decision-making roles know our capabilities as well. So often, um, if there was a bid for a job, as in like a mission, we may get we may lose that mission because we're not uh, boastful enough, really. So SEALs are good at convincing people that they're awesome, um, and that's a lot by just talking, not really doing much. Um, you just look at look at the things they've done recently as far as the books and movies. That that movie, what was the name of it? The uh, SEAL movie, recent one. Valor. Oh, uh, Act of Valor? Yeah. They had, like, real Navy SEALs filming that movie. Uh, wh- why aren't you at work? <laughs> like, wh- <laughs> am I missing something? Like, there's a lot of work to be done. At what, like, 
what are you doing? Like, go, go train, go, go do something important for the country, not film a fucking movie. Um, yeah, just stack up the number of books and movies from SEALs versus SF guys, and I think the it's disproportionate. I mean, it's just, it's just institutional. Big, yeah. big difference. Now, I mean, like the two the two SF books that I have actually read was uh, was interviews, and it was a writer following along or a writer that like wanted a, a, a story told. And so you talking about the Dick Couch book? Well, there's the Dick Couch book, and then there's the um, the other book. I don't remember his name right now, but I think oh, it's uh, Eric Blem. Yeah. He wrote um, uh, Brownie's book, um, Fearless. Yeah. He also wrote a book called um, The Only Thing Worth uh, Dying For, which is uh, a really interesting, interesting book if you actually want to get into like how like. I mean, a little bit of operation side of the SF groups, what they what they do. I mean, yeah, Dick Couch actually wrote that book. I think I told you this before. Yeah, for my class, your like, class. That was my. Those were all my dudes. Like I know all those guys he was talking about in the book. So I mean, like I remember him seeing walking around. Like I'd be just deliriously tired and pissed off and cold and hungry, and see this like old crusty dude out there, like taking notes and talking to people, and like who's this? Get out of here. <laughs> I'm so mad at you right now for no reason. <laughs> I found out who he was. I talked to him eventually a couple of times. Really nice guy. Um, now, uh, we're talking about self-promoting and all that stuff, and one person that was actually in your class was Tim Kennedy. Yep. And he definitely has a little bit of self-promotion going on for himself. I, mean, uh, I, I think mean, he learned that in the fight game, though. That's not. Oh, uh, uh, yeah, because it's not MMA. SF. No. No, that's totally MMA. Yeah. It's like tap out Affliction Central. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I, I went through the key course with Tim. Um, he's a really nice guy. He's a smart guy, hard worker. Um, but that that's not SF. That's something else. All right. So um, you've been in for how many years now? Going on thirteen. Going on thirteen. You were you were active duty for for how long? About half of it. Uh, first five and a half, five and change. Okay. Um. Aside from being a, an SF member, you're also a firearms instructor. I dabble. You dabble in it. <laughs> dabble. Just dabble a little bit. Get my swerve on now and then. <laughs> um. I mean, are there any? Are there any? Uh. I mean. First thing that comes to your mind, like a good, a, a good messed up story, uh, just like like absolute chaos. What the hell's going on? Like, is this really happening? I mean, like New Hampshire or somewhere else? <laughs> I could go either way. <laughs> we talking personal or work related? Because I've got a lot of personal stories where I'm like, man, well, I, where, like, where, what kind of what kind of uh, like you always hear like so. Um, I just heard a, talking about Navy SEALs, and again, like I'm definitely following that. Um, <clears throat> that demographic where I know more about Navy SEALs just because of what's out in the media. Shocking. Right. Uh, but like, I just read a statistic that m- like the majority of Navy SEALs have come from New England. Like the people that make it, like it's like something like 42% of all Navy SEALs are from, or have been from New England because and then like, I believe they, that they equate it to it. They can deal with the cold. You know what I mean? Um, what, like, what was your childhood like and what, spurred you on to uh to deciding to go that route and, and join the military uh so dad's a retired lieutenant colonel mom's an english teacher so 
my grandfather was in the military. I never knew him, but he was in the military. Dad was in the military. Uh, Dad retired before I really could remember anything, so it wasn't like I was right. really keenly aware of it, but I definitely knew it was in the lineage. And uh, to make a really long story short, super hot mess from about 16 to 18, a lot of issues with law enforcement. <laughs> uh, really boiled down to me being bored and not being challenged. So when that happens, when you're a guy like me, most of the guys I work with are all the same. Uh, you will find ways to create challenges uh, in, in good ways or bad ways. I chose the, uh, the latter. <laughs> so um, basically looking for something different, something challenging, um, something that would be physically challenging, emotionally challenging, spiritually challenging, something different. I wanted to get outside my comfort zone. Hated the idea of being in New Hampshire uh, for some reason. Love it now, but as a kid it felt um, like a trap. So I just wanted to get out, go do something else. That was really difficult. Right. Um, so what is the, the, the process? Um, like, take, take us through, like, when you, when you get there, like, when the first time you leave home and you get there and, and, and you realize, like, kind of what you've had, you've, you've signed up for. Like, what was that like? So when I actually signed the dotted line, I was pretty much... And like in the middle of my insanity. So I realized what I had done. <laughs> sort of buckled up for it. And then I realized the commitment I made. And it was uh, relatively sobering because I kind of pulled my head out of my ass, so to speak, towards the, the, the tail end of that time period, 18 or so. Um, went down to Boston, signed the paperwork. Or I think I did it out of Manchester, but I ended up going to Boston to ship out. I remember the first night leaving, they put you up in a hotel by yourself. And I, was, I think it was by myself for the first time in a while, like legally, you know, not without being in trouble. And, uh, you know, it's pretty sobering. You're thinking about taking off for the first time. You realize the commit, you, uh, commitment you've made. You have absolutely no idea what's going to happen. Right. You have no idea what you're getting yourself into. And you know it's for the long haul. It's a five-year five year, uh, commitment. And you have no idea if you're going to make it. You know, your head's filled with doubt, uh, curiosity, fear. Uh, so you're sitting there in this shitty hotel in Boston, get ready to ship out. Next thing you know, you're flying down to um, reception down at Fort Benning. And Fort Benning is where the infantry is. So if you have a combat MOS, like combat engineer, infantry, or anything like that, you go to Fort Benning. That's where your basic training is. And that place is just like the movies. Uh, day one, as far as them, like, just absolutely losing their mind at you. <laughs> so, uh, there I mean, is, is it really like the movies when you, when you show oh, yeah. up, there's just like, oh, there's groups of guys walking Mar this way and that with no particular order there. Well, no, cause there's, there's drill sergeants running around, like screaming at you. Like just, <laughs> it's amazing. It's a sight to see. It really is. I wish I could go back. Um, but you're just getting hurt off like cattle. And I pretty much blacked out for the first two weeks. Like, I just did what I was told, got yelled at a lot. Um, no idea what it was going on. And all you're doing really is in processing. It's just admin, medical, admin, medical, admin, medical. But everything is crazy. Uh, it's your first experience in the military, so it's, it's way, way different. You know, you're talking about guys who were sitting on the couch doing whatever they wanted to, now getting told what to do. Every step of the way is dictated. You have zero decisions to make. Everything's made for you. Um, so it was very, very eye-opening. And then once you get... Uh, done in processing you actually go to your basic training unit which i forget what mine is i think mine is b258 sounds familiar um and then you spend three and a half months roughly doing infantry basic training so this is where you learn to shoot an m16 
we had to polish your boots at the time, how to wear a uniform, how to do army stuff. Um, it's a long drawn out stupid thing. Looking back, you know, you think it's very important and the world's going to fall apart if you don't do something this way or that way. And, and looking back, it's silly and just uh, part of the process. You get done that, then you go to airborne school, which I think is three weeks or so, four weeks maybe, and uh, hurt yourself out of an airplane a couple times, go get your airborne wings, and then you can go off the SOPSI. And that begins your course too, you know, the, the Q course or the qualification course, which when I went through was – you know, up to two and a half years if you were a medic. It's a pretty long, drawn-out course. So what's the difference between, you said that the, um, that the SOPSI was more difficult than selection? Yeah. Like, what's the, what are the things that you're doing in both, and why was it, what, what made it different? So this is just my opinion, um, but it seemed to me, from my end, that what they did was uh, USASOC, or, or USAFIC, the you know, SOCOM component for uh, the Army, uh, basically took a bunch of burned-out, uh, steroid-using, five-time divorced Green Berets and set them aside, got them off of teams, which they were probably pissed off about leaving the teams, leaving their teams in the first place, and, and gave them a small corner in the middle of nowhere, Fort Bragg, and told them, hey, you're going to have 300 18-year-old kids that want to be Green Berets figure out who needs to be here and who doesn't. And then they just sort of turned around <laughs> and didn't pay any attention. Uh, so what transpired was what can only be described as a physical nightmare uh, involved rucking and running and PT, physical training. And, right. Um, I don't want to use the term hazing because <laughs> that's like, you know, bad, but hazing <laughs> okay so and I, and I get it i get it because uh you know these guys are trying to figure out who is going to show up to their team like do i want this kid and we were kids at the time do i want this kid showing up to my team or not it's not about being nice it's not about being politically correct it's do i want this guy on my team when i'm gone for nine months in some place weird so what what took place was uh, a really decent gut check for four weeks and Lots of running, lots of land nav, lots of PT. Uh, land nav is a big one. That's what gets a lot of guys. Guys can't handle that shit. Um, even in selection, land nav gets rid of most people. It's like map reading and things like that. And Yeah, so uh, I'm sure at some point someone smarter than me can explain it further, but uh, psychologists have determined that land nav um, is indicative of whether or not you possess the traits that are desirable for an SF guy meaning that if I drop you off in the middle of nowhere with 75 pounds dry, meaning 75 pounds without water, um, and give you a point, you know, 10, 15 clicks away, if you can navigate there quickly at night during the day um, and you can keep doing that, then you possess the internal willpower and the self-management that they're looking for because it's a daunting task. Um, you know, when you have no idea really sometimes where you are, you can be lost as fuck. You're tired. You're cold. You're hungry. You're beat up. You've been doing this for four weeks. Um, will they have what's known as the uh, the fear monkey sitting on your shoulder? It's this invisible monkey that obviously doesn't really exist, but it keeps asking you, hey, do you know where you are? Are you sure about that? Are you sure about that? Are you making time? I feel like you're moving pretty slow. You should hurry up. Ooh, that's not the right point. Ooh. <laughs> and your ability to tell that fear monkey to go fuck himself and keep doing what you need to do is very important. So guys that can do land nav well 
have good self-management. They're good self-starters. They're calm under stress. They can uh, sort of figure stuff out on their own, and they're, they're able to operate independently. They don't need to be carried because there's literally no one else there. You're in the middle of fucking nowhere in some pretty rugged terrain with some decent weight on and no real time standards. So when you go to selection, you go to SOPSI, they take your watch. Uh, you obviously can't have a GPS, um, and they don't tell you what the standard is. They say do your best, which is a mind fuck in and of itself because right. you don't know what you're like. Well, what's the best? Like, what do I need to do? And they won't tell you. Right. Um, so you are battling yourself the entire time, and uh, if you can do it, then someone much smarter than me said that you possess the traits that they're looking for. Do they have a, uh, a a time standard, or do you think it's just if someone gets it done? You know what I mean? Like, because it. So they got it got like the nav the land nav got most of the guys and and that's what kind of took them out of the program was do you think that it was just like you possessed the willpower to keep going and get it done that was good enough or do you think that like you they actually was like a standard to, to do it I think it's a little bit of both I think uh, on some of the events there's a certain standard I know when I went through the star it was um, basically four points in a thirty six hour period or something like that so. That point, you you know, you had a time standard, but you it wasn't per event or per, you know, marker. Right. Um, but the land nav gets rid of most guys after the initial sort of shock of being there. So we got rid of. I think we started with three hundred guys, and we had at least one hundred and fifty quit within the first couple of days because they just got the, you know, a pretty solid reality check about what they're getting into. Out of them, right? Yeah. So the guys, the next step is after you get there, um, and you've been through the first couple of days and you really kind of determined to, to, to gut this out. Um, the land nav is sort of the next big thing that really screws guys up. So I, I think I remember in the book that I read that like it, 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 there's, it's not a, it's not a like you suck. See you later. Like going back to regular. It's like, it's like if a guy has like a certain something about them, it, like they go through a board right before they before they get kicked out of of selection depends depends why you didn't meet it so you could get uh if you v dub or, or they probably call it something different now but if you voluntary withdraw it's a politically correct term for fucking quitting if you quit <laughs> then you're fucking gone like pack your shit and leave um if you don't meet a certain standard that's objective like like a physical standard or something like that, then pack your shit, you're gone. If you perform well, you've got the right attitude, but you're not making times or you fail land nav, um, they'll offer you the opportunity to potentially come back and try again. Uh, usually the only time you get boarded is at the end if you've completed the whole thing but haven't, but have had some issues, either with the, uh, the psychology exam or... <laughs> <laughs> Or, or if you uh, had some, you know, other reviews with peers or something like that, other issues. So you go to the board and kind of plead your case, and uh, and then they'll say yay or nay. So I mean, there's a lot. A lot of this too is psychological testing, like actual batteries. You know, the four thousand question test that asks, "Do you like flowers?" And you're like, "Man, do I say yes or no?" If I say yes, they're going to think I'm a loser. If I say no, they're going to think I'm a sociopathic serial killer. So which one do I answer? And they ask, do you like flowers a hundred different ways five hundred times? So 
uh, you get a lot of those questions or a lot of those tests as well. And of course, you take it when you're tired and hungry. So you you, know, you try and lie for the first couple, then you're like, fuck it. I'm just going to answer this. Like, no, I hate flowers right now. I'm tired and cold. And, and fuck you. <laughs> like penciling in your own answers. Uh, yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> so I uh, said, like, um, like, one of the things that might get you, uh, or, might not pass for is the uh, the the physical aspect of it not meeting physical like expectations. What are what are the physical expectations when you go to SOPC or selection? Get, have your fucking mind right because uh, it's not really so much a physical thing as it is a mental thing. Uh, I saw PT studs like guys. You said this kid's gonna knock it out of the park. Um, I saw those guys quit day one. I saw those guys fail miserably. And I've seen guys that you look at very judgingly and you're like, this kid's a nerd. There's no way. He must be lost. He plays video games. What's this kid doing here? And uh, and he turns out to be an absolute monster, like just monster. Uh, and those are the guys that make it because it's all mental because at, at one point or at some point, they're going to get you all on the same sheet of music. For example, um, you know, let's say a guy's really physically fit. Okay, well, I'm just going to have you do push-ups. At some point, you're going to get tired. No one doesn't, you know, you're going to get tired. Right. So they basically, every time they do this, they get you on the same sheet of music so you've got nothing left in the gas tank. They get you there right off the bat. Um, and then they see what you've got left. Right. And that's where they really start to discern who, who should be there and who shouldn't. Um, because it, it, it's true, you know, you want to be physically fit. Uh, there's no doubt about it. It's going to help you out, and you need to be for the job. But no one really cares about that because you can always get physically fit. What you can't get is to not be a pussy, <laughs> right. right? That's something right. you need to have inherent right. to you. Can't teach heart. Right, yeah. you got to have that, and that's what they're really checking on. So when you talk about physical standards, you, know, you have to pass the Army PT test, which is pretty easy to do. Um, but when you talk about uh, other physical checks like log PT, or rifle PT, there's a lot of other things that you're, they're trying to get you to do. And if you can't do that, or if you quit on one of those events, you're gone. Right. Like gone, gone. Right. What's known as NTR, like never to return. So if you quit, or if you're caught like running the roads on land nav, or if you're like a, an integrity violation, you're, you're gone. Like never to return. You can't even come back and try. Right. So they hold that kind of that honesty and everything to a really Huge. high standard. Right? Huge. Yeah. Yep. Um, so it sounds like that. Like the the PT was more to break everyone down to get to like, every, yeah. Everyone on the like you said this like the same sheet of music is like everyone's going to be tired, everyone's going to be hungry, everyone's going to be cold and wet, and then we're going to see what you can do. Absolutely. And they got through there fast because no no one, for being completely honest, like who who gives a shit how many push ups you can do? No one. Like no one cares um, how fast you can run. No one really cares. Uh, that's not important. It's not. I mean, you have to have a standard. You have to meet the standard. But you hear that? Doesn't matter how fast you can run, unless you're Usain Bolt. Oh, I can't run very fast, so I was just going with that one. <laughs> Running breeds cowardice. It's overrated. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm using that from now on. Yeah, seriously, it's standard fight. What do you run away from? Like, why would you run voluntarily? It's that's like, that's hilarious because so weird. That's what made me decide to learn how to fight. Was my I was like during it was like. I forget what sport I was playing as a kid. My, I was like complaining to my dad. I'm like, man, I, like, and this still holds true because I've never become a good runner. I was like, man, I am like the most awful runner. I hate doing it, whatever. And he looked at me with like the most sobering face, right dead in the eye. He's like, 
Better learn to fight then. And I was like, well, there goes that. <laughs> I think the fastest time I ever ran, which is like embarrassing compared to some of my peers, uh, for the two miles is 12.45. And I actually ran that in Iraq of all places. But Oof. yeah, 12.45. Um, That's a really fast two-mile time. I don't think I've ever done that. Yeah, I never did it again. Um, but th- there's guys my team, like right now my captain can run like you know, 11 and change and doesn't even – you know, that's, that's my mile time <laughs> seriously seriously like, I, like if i get a 10 minute mile i'm like all right good yeah no I'm, i mean well, i'm surrounded by pt studs at work those guys can can burn it down although i think i ran faster when i did reach the beach that, like i there's like the, the another side. stupid thing to do by the way <laughs> While we're talking Dude, about it, it was I know I, it was fun. It was fun. I feel like, well, um, kind of going along with the conversation, I feel like I feel like running is ninety percent mental. You know what I mean? Like, I start to run, and I like the first thing I think I was like, "This is so fucking boring. Why am I doing this?" Like, then when you get past that, I feel like then that's when you start making time. But I, the whole time I'm running, I'm like, well, "I don't want to be doing this. This is boring." The first like, eight hundred meters are the worst. I'm convinced that. Uh, and if you were a sports uh, psychologist or if you were a, uh, you know, a very high-rated trainer, you'd probably agree with this, I think. I'm just regurgitating info here. But I'm convinced that if you're running constantly, uh, not for like a race or something, if you're running for fun but for distance, um, that you're doing it for psychological reasons. Because, oh, yeah. because there's, there's yeah. better ways to get cardio. There's better ways to be strong. I mean, you would sprint. You would do. You would change up the the cycle. You would never run ten miles or five miles at a pace that doesn't do much for you. So there's other ways to get those physical benefits that are smarter. Um, I think people run because they like to run because it gives them something. So if you're running like fifteen miles a day, yep. you've got some issues. Deep, deep, deep issues. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that, that's that's absolutely true. And, and your like, and your cowardice game is probably pretty strong. Um, <laughs> people close to me that uh, like they they don't run for physical exercise. They run because it's just like it's it's sobering and it's I mean it's pretty much meditation is yeah. what it is. I drink for that. <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you always say? What? Uh, Real real men don't don't confront their feelings. They just bury it deep inside and drink yeah, it just, away. Yeah, just internalize that. Be quiet about it. No one wants to hear your problems. Just drink it away. <laughs> just kidding. That's terrible advice. This coffee looks delicious. That sound you're hearing is uh, coffee. Coffee. You guys ever hear uh, Dave Grohl on uh, on YouTube yelling for fresh pots? No. So apparently Dave Grohl has a serious coffee problem. Where, my kind of guy. It's a medical issue. Like he, I guess he got hospitalized. But you you need a YouTube Dave Grohl screaming for fresh pots. Uh, it's absolutely hilarious. I'll have to show you after. It's, it's really worth it. Just yelling for fresh pots of coffee. Screaming. Screaming. Yeah. Was he on stage or something? Or no, this is all like sort of. Uh, you know, home studio stuff. And I guess kind of backstage where they're playing, uh, kind of just dicking around, hanging out. But yeah, he's he's a no shit, like, got issues with coffee. So it's awesome. <laughs> Don't we all? Fuck yeah. I uh, saw them at uh, Foo Fighters at Fenway Park. Not that great. 
No? No, it was like, uh, I feel like they were trying to be like the ultimate rock show. So like he was just screaming and playing his guitar like as hard as he could. And I was like, this doesn't Nice really commitment though. Sound good, yeah. Well, another funny thing was he had a broken... Burn it down. Oh, a, yeah. It's up to you. Do it. He, it's uh, worth it. You'll, you'll, yeah. <laughs> he also he also had a he also had a broken leg at the time. It was yeah. sitting in that throne with the fucking like the lights all around it. Dude, seriously, it's it's awesome. All right, my my cousin pulled up. My cousin told me about this. You gotta watch him though. Yeah. Here, put it down and then just move the mic. He's insane. <laughs> so I heard I can so I can so sympathize. I'm on a pretty strict um, uh, half, I can too. Yeah. I'm on a pretty strict half booze, half coffee routine right now. I, I drink as well. much coffee as possible throughout the day. Um, uh, how many ounces? Because I can tell you how many ounces of coffee I drink a day. I don't know by ounces. At least like, I know I have like one strong, strong cup of coffee in the morning before I leave for work. Maybe I'll make <laughs> another one. How many ounces Pussy. would you say that three <laughs> large Dunkin' Donuts ice brews are? Ice cold brews. Well, you're drinking Dunkin' Donuts. That's your first problem. Hey, listen. Whatever. It's, it's, it's a proximity issue. Yeah. It's fast. It's convenient. We're good. Um, yeah, we we drink. We're like constantly like buying coffee for each other like throughout the day. Like you going, you going, me go. Like, go. Who's going? Uh, who's Send going? Mike. Who's Send going? your minions. He's like, go get the intern. Send your minions. Go get coffee. <laughs> Whatever they're doing, it's not as important as me feeling better. But interesting fact that we bring up: uh, drinking massive amounts of coffee. They were gonna say booze. Yeah, well, that too. Um, but. Few weeks ago, you had a drill where you got you got parachuted in, right? Uh, yeah. And you had to go through caffeine withdrawals. Oh, dude, <laughs> dude, <laughs> not a laughing matter. Not a laughing matter. I'm not laughing for a reason because that was absolutely terrible. So it was all fun and games. Like, oh, I like coffee, drink coffee. It's cool. So we were doing a. Uh, Basically a sear refresher, sear lane refresher. So we uh, we jumped out of Blackhawks, uh, landed, and then uh, in the scenario, basically had to evade on the ground. So we had actual evasion lanes, and we were running around doing our thing, trying not to get captured by some other guys. And we, you know, didn't have any food except the food that we were able to recover um, for about two and a half days, two days maybe, and obviously no coffee. So about the middle of day one started feeling pretty weird. Didn't know why. Um, by the the evening of night one, I was in a really bad bad way, and I could not figure out why. And uh, it was actually my team sergeant who said, "Hey, I think it's coffee because I'm having the same thing." Well, half the team was like almost debilitated, just <laughs> cowering in a fetal position, <laughs> trying not to get captured. <laughs> Not because it was cold out or because we were hungry, but we were having caffeine withdrawals. <laughs> so, like, seriously, uh, word of caution to all uh, ODAs out there, like, 
limit your caffeine or or hump caffeine with your bullets too because it's a serious <laughs> concern. Caffeine, it, it, it caffeine was, and bullets. It, 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 it was apocalypse of caffeine. Dude, it was <laughs> it was grounds. debilitating. It was an awful experience. That's what you should do is get a tin and just dump the tobacco out and stuff it full of coffee. If I had known it was going to be an issue, we would have like you know. Packed caffeine. No, we would have cached some coffee out there along the way. I mean, somewhere. at least like no dose caffeine pills or something like that. But something it was. We it put us in a bad way. Ca- caffeine withdrawal is 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 no joke. And like I've I've I did some research a long time ago on caffeine withdrawal and <laughs> well, well, what caffeine does to your system and all that stuff. Bro, and like if I don't have coffee within thirty minutes of waking up, I have the most debilitating headache and I'm an asshole <laughs> more than usual. <laughs> um. But I mean, like it actually. I think it's. It, it, it caffeine has like a certain debilitating effects over a long time, and and every once in a while, I periodically like kind of wean myself off of caffeine, and, like go down to like a, as little caffeine as possible to get me throughout the day. If not, quitter. Completely, I know, right? Um, no one likes a quitter, Scott. But the the first time that I I did a caffeine withdrawal, I was. Like I was a raging asshole for two days, and it was like headache. It was just like I was, Shocking. I was screaming at, at uh, a, a coworker. Again, <laughs> why, are you, why are you yelling at me? Um, <laughs> you know who that is? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, talks having like these the cabin peng- talks like the penguin from Batman. <laughs> <laughs> kind of walks like them too. It's just like I was throwing things and yelling at people. I was, I was, I was an asshole. I was an absolute asshole, and I didn't know why that I was being like that. I was like, oh yeah, caffeine. <laughs> and then I started having coffee, and I just magically felt better. Dude, it's no joke, man. It's actually a consideration now for any other planning I'm doing for the military. <laughs> it's okay. Got water, no one cares. Got bullets, no one cares. Uh, medical stuff, yeah, cool. Where's the coffee? Who's bringing coffee or something? <laughs> something with coffee in so it. So that being said, when we uh, someone tries to take over the United States, just cut off the coffee supply. <laughs> Dude, yeah. No, I wouldn't leave my house. I'd be in the fetal position. The Can, serious crushing headache. Can you imagine that? Do you ever like, listen to um to Joey Diaz, the comedian? No. He's got this bit about how people nowadays are pussies and back when he was a kid no one had peanut allergies so he's like in 20 years when someone tries to invade the united states they're just gonna throw peanuts at us <laughs> dude either that or they're gonna do like a drive-by of gluten to start throwing bread at people <laughs> get back what's that what's that uh, get back after shooter get back active shooter. Salt pillow. take this bread to the face <laughs> just being being bombed by wonder bread loaves oh Awesome. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> uh, America knocked off by peanuts and gluten. <laughs> but I mean, like, yeah, we talk about some serious stuff. We talk about like some possible like electronic devices that can wa- wipe out cities' infrastructure. What would happen if there was zero caffeine in America? Like just it was like one day we had Red Bulls, we had Monster Energy drinks, we had caffeine. Like there's a there's a freaking Dunkin' Donuts on on every corner. Sometimes both corners. I'm really rethinking and, my uh, my <laughs> yeah. my zombie apocalypse scenario now. Dude, get your priorities straight, man. Seriously. Like what what happened? What would happen if caffeine was completely cut off in America? Well, I'll tell you, half my team would be in the field position with this pounding headache and feeling very very vomity. Yeah. I like. 
I hate to say it, but coffee is one of those things for me where like I can leave the house and be like, oh, my pants aren't fitting right. The shirt's uncomfortable. Like just not. And then have one cup of coffee and I'm like, feel great. All's right in the world. So, I mean, when you're on deployment, you have caffeine, coffee. Yeah. Um, usually. I don't know, I think I've probably been to better part of 30 countries at this point. Every single one of them, you can find something comparable. Um, I know in Iraq, <laughs> it's something called rippets. The uh, veteran dudes out there will know what rippets are. Uh, rippets are magical. They're probably carcinogenic, but uh, they're like a uh, really, really strong Red Bull. Uh, they also have got some local stuff called Wild Tiger. <laughs> <laughs> Don't so, even, sounds legit. Pretty sure it's not regulated. Um, so you you can always find coffee or some sort of knockoff energy drink anywhere you are. Uh, the first time I ever had Red Bull was in Thailand. Yeah. It's, it's like non-caffeinated and just these little vials of things. It's not carbonated either, right? It's like... Yeah. It's, did I say caffeinated or carbonated? Caffeinated. I said caffeinated. Okay, yeah. Uh, non-carbonated. It's like drinking syrup. Yep. Yeah. And, but get you, get you going. What's the other one? M- M18 or whatever it is? That stuff's amazing. Uh, put you on the moon. <laughs> I mean, I, I think in Thailand, like even like the me, I think it's a Mekong whiskey has actual amphetamines in it, um, nice. which I don't doubt because there were some wild nights when when I was over in Thailand involving Mekong whiskey, <laughs> uh, maybe a dance club or two in this weird underground place that I couldn't really see much. I think I have at least ten of those stories per country. <laughs> <laughs> Most of which will not be discussed. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, that's it's all very near and dear to my heart. <laughs> Got to so, get weird, man. Got to get weird. It sounds like, um, so we're talking about uh, Sopsy and then you go to Selection. What's the difference between Sopsy and Selection then? So the difference is Sopsy is only for 18 x-rays. Uh, so you've got a bunch of kids that don't know anything, but they're at that point, uh, by the end of Sopsy, you won't quit. Uh, anything physical, and you can land nav. So when you go to selection, uh, for the last five weeks, you've been getting your ass handed to you by the crazy-ass SF guys that don't like anything, and they're all burnt out and angry and hate you. Uh, so when you go to selection, it's somewhat of a breeze, so to speak, because uh, you've been doing it already. Right. Um, it's nothing new. Okay, you want me to run, and you're not going to tell me how far it is. Uh, you can't. Okay, got it, whatever. I'm just going to run. Um, so, like, when you go to selection, the runs or the rock marches, they don't tell you the distance. They just say, do your best. So, you're at night, you'll just follow chem lights along the road, and you don't know if it's a mile or 12 miles for the run. So, you have to pace yourself accordingly. So, if you think it's a mile and you haul ass, you burn yourself out, you can't even complete the 12-miler, you're gone. Uh, if you take t- too long, you try and pace yourself and it only ends up being a mile, then you're not going to make time. Right. And you're, uh, wearing, you're wearing a pack at this point, right? Uh, well, it depends. I mean, if you're running, no. But if you're rucking, then yeah. Okay. And then I think it was 65 pounds dry for the rucks. Um, so the, the big difference is now you're with regular Army guys who are trying to go to selection, but may they, they, they haven't been to Sop C. They haven't had the preparation that you've had. Right. And they don't like you for it either. You're usually younger than they are. Um, you're usually pretty confident because you've already been to Sop C, and they don't like that. And I understand why, um, but the fact remained that we sort of outperformed them every step of the way. Um, 
And there were guys there that were studs too, but the SOPSI program definitely gives you a big, big advantage if you can complete it. So when you go to selection, you're like, okay, running, rucking, land nav, got it, no problem. So it's just kind of more of the same, but with a different group? Yep, more of the same, different group, different spot, uh, you know, different land nav areas, some pretty notorious ones. Um, but same, same stuff, uh, just round two of it. So you're prepared, you know what to expect. Um, you're just with a different crew. So um, I guess if I'm trying to figure out how to word this. So if you're going to give someone advice to, to, um, to complete selection or, or, or be able to go through the selection stuff, um, like what, what are the, some things that, what are some key things to, to be successful at land nav and things like that? Do you think? I think first and foremost, um, you have to really, truly want it, and it's easy to say that, but it's very, very difficult to actually come to terms with whether or not you want it. If it's something you're interested in just trying to try out or if you're trying to escape something, um, you know, if you're trying to leave your unit because you don't like it and you're just trying to try something else to get out of it, uh, it's not going to work out for you. Um, they will put you in a spot mentally and physically where uh, you are pretty, pretty, pretty tested, and if you don't truly want it, you will not be successful, period. Uh, so that's the first thing is, is I would tell someone that you really have to truly, truly want this. Um, I think the thing that probably kept me going the most was the fact that I could never look at myself in the mirror, look at myself in the mirror or look at my father and tell him that I quit. Um, so that's what kept me from quitting. I wasn't so concerned if I didn't meet the standard as long as I didn't quit. Um, but I never had to recycle or restart anything. Uh, I was actually the, uh, the number one guy in the, the Q course for my class for the weapons. So I never had to actually recycle anything. Um, I went straight through, but it's only because I really, really wanted it. The other thing is, uh, in consideration, you know, now versus then, you have to be real focused. You can't have any distractions. So when I went through, I was 18 and 19. When I was done training, I went back and read books about what I was doing. I did my homework. I practiced. I went to the gym. I didn't have a family to go back to. I, right. I didn't have a girlfriend. I didn't have a kid. I had no life. I was just focused on the task at hand, and that helped out considerably. I have no idea how someone like me now, and they do. There's a lot of guys my age that are going through now with families and wives and kids. I don't know how they do it. Right. No idea. So you have to really, really want it. You have to limit your distractions, and then you have to possess the things that you can't really train, which are um, being really, really smart, <laughs> really, really adaptive and resourceful quickly, uh, having a lot of self-confidence, and having good self-management. So if you do fuck up, if you get lost, not falling apart like a wet paper bag in a thunderstorm, uh, pulling your head out of your ass, um, taking a look at it, fixing the problem, and driving on and getting to where you need to be. Uh, a lot of guys, if you take a uh, some good guys I know um, that ended up recycling, coming through and getting through at a later point, initially they weren't really ready because if they took a ding uh, or if they got if they did something incorrect or they failed something or something didn't go their way, they uh, they didn't really do well emotionally with it. They sort of fell apart and it kept building on itself and building on itself and building on itself to the point where they just couldn't do anything. Um, Whereas I think guys like myself, we fucked up shit all the time. But the difference was, all right, I fucked it up. 
what did I learn from it? Okay, don't do this again. Got it. And then I'd move on, uh, you know, try my best in the next thing. I know uh, I lost a set of night vision on the infill jump to Robin Sage. And losing something like that is a huge, huge deal in the military, like huge deal. Um, so what happens was you had to kind of go back, retrace your steps, get online, and you had to find this. And this is in the middle of the woods. And I found it in the basically the piece of cord that I had it tied down as a tie down had ripped and cut and it fell off while we were moving at night. And uh, I found it, but it was a counseling statement, meaning that you got a written, hey, you fucked up. Uh, and it was a big deal because it was the start of the two-week Robin Sage course, and it was close to the end. Um, and it was a big deal to lose those nods. But uh, it didn't let it affect me. Just signed my paperwork, said, yeah, I got it. Don't worry about it. it won't happen again. And uh, ended up hearing number one out of the whole group and completing it without a problem. So I think having those that innate ability to compartmentalize problems and focus on the task at hand is, uh, is extremely important to be able to do it. Are there um, technical things that make it easier looking back on it now that, you know? No, I mean, they, when you go through the ASVAB, I forget what it stands for, um, basically the Army's test to see how smart you are. Right. Uh, they're looking for, you have to have certain scores to even apply to be an SF guy. So most of the guys I work with are extremely intelligent. I'll give you an example. Right now, uh, my captain goes to Harvard Business School. My previous captain went to Harvard Business School and the Harvard Kennedy School. Um, my warrant officer uh, has been through his master's degree at the Naval Warfare College. Team Sergeant has a degree. Um, I've got a college degree. Uh, my junior has a college degree. My engineer went to Dartmouth, right. and he's in Columbia right now. He's got like I don't know, like lots. Yeah, I lost track how many degrees he has. My medic is going to Columbia undergrad. Uh, my senior commo guy is working on his doctorate right now. So that just gives you a show uh, of of a typical ODA, and. Uh, the kind of professional development they're looking to keep getting and the, the goals they've set for themselves. So you take this ASVAB and it basically gives you placements. So one of the things you're looking for is GT, which is general technical. You have to score, I think, 110. And most SF guys get max it out. And that's your ability to um, basically fix problems. And those, and if you get a good score on that, um, it's supposed to be indicative of your ability to problem solve. And, uh, Sometimes it is. Sometimes it isn't. I heard um, a quote. Um, I figure who said it um, that high level military is really just high level problem solving in a 3D area. Like that's like what he broke it down to, which seems like that's pretty accurate. Yeah, no doubt about it. There's, uh, I don't really, um, I don't like the term advanced because I don't know, like, you know, there's nothing really advanced about what we do. Um, your ability to do simple things um, quickly. In all conditions, right is uh, is incredibly important. But yeah, that's a uh, that's pretty pretty good. All you're really doing is, is solving problems. Um, you may be doing it with by building a school or by you know with a gun or a bomb or or you know a meeting, you know. But what you're really doing is, is solving a problem somewhere, um, and it can be a pretty abstract problem. One of the things that separates us from other guys is our lack of guidance, so to speak. So right. we're given sort of an end state 
So I would, you know, if the commander said, hey, I want this, I want the, the battle space or I want this area to look like this down the road, uh, go. <laughs> right. And we, so we have very wide left and right limits. It's up to us. You know, we develop our own missions. We gather our own intelligence. We do everything ourselves. Nothing gets given to us. Right. Um, so we're able to shape the battle space how we want to based on our own actions. Um, and we, we, you know, fix those problems um, any way we see fit. Right. Really. So you're kind of more of a, uh, so the job of, or your job and your, your unit's job is to, uh, kind of sounds like you're, you're, you're the tool used to make things the way it needs to be made. You like, it doesn't seem like, so I have some friends that were army rangers and it was like, you know, they were, they were somewhere stationed somewhere for a long time doing the same thing, you know, and it didn't matter if jobs get done they just found a new job for you for them sounds more like you guys were there to get a job done and then move somewhere else to do a different job kind of i mean we have longer deployments than range battalion does range battalion usually does 90 day rotations and we're usually doing six to eight month rotations so it's not that we shift around it's that we don't have very pointed tasks usually so whereas a ranger battalion or company would say hey go secure this village go seize this airfield go do this go do that uh we don't do that we we get the make this place better <laughs> right uh and that's that's really what it is i mean yeah the mission statements are much more specific than that um but the the the, the idea is the same they have a very sort of pointed task the same way seals do seals don't do f uh, foreign internal defense they don't do training. They don't do any of that stuff. They're more of a direct action unit um, where that's what we do as well, but we've got four other things that we can do. And uh, so we're more multifaceted, like I said earlier, than, than the other right. guys. Uh, so how, <laughs> how do you have time to do all these things and then also get a college degree? <laughs> and, you know what I mean? Like like what is the, what is the, uh, the, the scenario for um, – like being able to do that. Like, I, it seems like there's a. So I left active duty because um, in active duty, you don't have that opportunity. You know, you're, you're doing Army stuff the whole time. And I did a direct transfer to National Guard Special Forces. And during that time, I was a full time student, part time SF guy. Uh, although, what they don't tell you is that part time SF guy means a lot of SF stuff. It's not one week in a month, two weeks in the summer, like you see in the, you know, the ads for National Guard. It's a lot more than that. So my four-year college degree actually took me six years because I left for a year to deploy to Iraq. I took another six months off or another semester off to do some other military schools, and then I took another semester off to do more military schools. So um, it's really sort of uh, just time management and figuring out your priorities. So I knew I needed to get a college degree, um, and I, I knew I needed to stay. You know, I'm an able-bodied American. I should be doing something other than, you know, for someone else other than myself. So I wanted to stay uh, in the fight, so to speak, in, in that regard, but I knew I needed to get a college degree as well. So it was kind of give and take, you know, a little bit of college, a little bit of Army, a little bit of college, right. a little bit of Army. And right. six years later, I get that fancy piece of paper that no one cares about. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank God. Now you told me I'm educated. Right. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> Where would I be without you? College. Uh, so you get through selection... Uh, so there's selection, and then there's second uh, second phase or third phase. So when I went through, it's uh, I'm sure it's changed now. I think it has, but 
I went to Sopsy, then I went to Selection, then you have what's called Sopsy 2. And Sopsy 2 is the same idea of Sopsy 1, less horrible and physically mean because now you've been through Selection, which doesn't mean dick, by the way, but they've got other focus now at this point. And Sopsy 2 was designed to prepare you for what was known at the time as Phase 2, which was small unit tactics. So think about, you know, the army posters of dudes wearing camouflage and, you know, patrolling through the jungle. That's what we were getting ready to do. Now, none of us know what the fuck we're doing, so we needed some sort of, um, you know, preparation before going right into the chopping block. Because every single phase, once you make it through a selection, congratulations, but no one fucking cares. Like, every single stage of the Q course is a gate, and you can get kicked out at any point if you don't make the standard. Right. And they're all difficult. Um, so Sopsy 2 basically taught us how to not just land nav now, but like patrol, which is land nav tactically in a group. So instead of just like putting your head down and rucking like a crazy person through the woods, now doing it without compromising yourself and moving correctly and, and how to react to fire and how to do all the stuff that you do in basic training, but at a higher level. Um, so you, you do that. If you pass that, you go to phase two, which was small unit tactics. And anyone who'd been to ranger school would disagree with this. Uh, I haven't, by the way. I went straight to college and skipped high school. <laughs> uh, but SUT was uh, basically a, a mini ranger school. So it was a 30-day instead of 62 days. And all you're doing is rucking around. You're doing raids, ambushes, uh, reactive combat, uh, reactive contact, excuse me, um, fire-based stuff, uh, patrol-based stuff. You know, you're doing all the jungle stuff no no trucks no mounted anything it's all small unit tactics in the woods once you get done that you go to your mos stage and mos everyone in the army has an mos it's called your military occupational spe uh, specialty so if you're an infantry guy you're an 11 bravo if you're uh, an sf guy you're an 18 something um, but every job if you're like a mechanic you have got a i don't know what it is 52 P. I don't know, right? right? You've got a designation. Well, the typical, um, and, and an SF team has four uh, main MOSs, uh, Bravo, Charlie, Delta, and Echo. Bravo's weapons, Charlie's demo, um, Delta's medical, and Echo is communications. So you've got assigned one of these jobs, and that's where you go. So I was a Bravo, so I went to the weapons course. And you learn everything about guns, foreign, domestic, mortars, you know, rocket launchers or bazookas, I think you called it earlier this morning, whatever you said, <laughs> bazookas, uh, pistols, rifles, you know, you learn all sorts of gun stuff. If you were a demo guy, Do you get you, to shoot them all. Yeah. Yeah. Um, sounds like the most fun. If you were a demo guy, you'd go blow stuff up and you'd go build things. Uh, if you were a medic, you'd go through SOCOM, which is a special operations combat medic course. Um, arguably the best medical program in the entire world. And you'd go be a, an SF medic. And if you were an Echo, you'd go learn how radios work and do that stuff. Then once you get done that portion, that's three months for me. Uh, three months for the demo guys. I think it was four months for the combo guys. And it's a year for the medics. Yeah, because they have to do an internship at a So they do hospital. all sorts of stuff. They do hospital rotations. And, and they do a lot of uh, the first half of Sockham is all trauma. And the second half is sort of... Um, like clinical stuff, you know, yeah, almost like a family practice, right? Primary yeah. care, yeah. Type deal. 
so they've got they've got all sorts of stuff they do there. It's a very 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 good program. Uh, I've been over there to work with some of those guys. Uh, actually, at the committee doing some training and stuff. They do a very very good, solid solid job with that. After you get done that, you you're you're good in your your job so to speak. Although at that point you don't know anything about your job. <laughs> I'm convinced. I only start to feel recently feel comfortable about what I'm doing, and that's 12 years in. So. I'm convinced that you don't really know what the hell you're doing until about 10 years into it. Um, once you do that, you go to Robin Sage, which is uh, an exercise in the middle of nowhere in North Carolina. Pineland? <laughs> yeah, University of Pineland. Yeah, Pineland. <laughs> yeah, Pineland is... Uh, <laughs> anyone who's been to the Key Corps knows very well what Pineland is and where it is. Um, you basically you get put into a fake team, a 12-man team. So you've got an officer. Right, because officers go through selection and they go through their own pipeline. So, 18 Alpha is a is a SF captain. They go through the 18 Alpha course. So, you've now got a captain and you've got a full team of dudes, and you pretend to be an ODA and you've got all sorts of weird tasks you have to do. And uh, the infill is one for the books. Uh, I think when I jumped out of the plane uh, on infill, I was carrying 120 pounds. Made for a long walk on the infill. It also was pouring rain. <laughs> Disastrous. Um, that's terrible. Uh, so once you get done Sage, you go to language. Every SF guy knows the language school. Uh, I went to Tagalog, Filipino, um, which oddly enough, I don't know anything about now. I did when I went to the Philippines. I spoke it most of the time in the Philippines, so I was pretty proficient then. But uh, I test out in Spanish and French now. That's easier to maintain. And then once you – language school is the worst part of the Q course because it's just the longest – um, once you do that, you go to Sears School, <laughs> uh, and you're going to the, the high-risk level C Sears School, not the Army Online Sears School or the other Sears schools. You're going to the real deal. Uh, you go to that one, and then once you're uh, done Sears School, you graduate, and you go to your team. How, so how long does the whole process like start to finish from when you sign the dot on the dotted line to when you go to your team? How long is that usually? So I started the whole process in January of 2004, and I was on a team in January of 2006. So it takes about two years. There was some inefficiency in the pipeline at that point. It didn't take two years. It took two years because there was some time spent dicking around between courses. Right. It probably takes about a year and a half or so. And each one of those is a, a point to pass. You know, nothing's guaranteed. There's guys that get kicked out all the time at the last minute. Hmm. So what do they do? What do they do with those guys that get kicked out after all that training? Uh, so often they'll get a chance to recycle, depending on what it was. You know, they can recycle that portion of the course. They can come back. Uh, if it's something really stupid or grave, then uh, they'll be basically. If you fail out at any point, you're going to the infantry. So you're going to the airborne infantry because you're airborne qualified. Right. So you're looking at the 82nd or the 173rd or something like that. So the 82nd has a lot of guys that fill a Q course. <laughs> <laughs> They've got a lot of guys because it, it's at Bragg. They're right there. So right, right. basically, a, hey, now you work for these guys. Congratulations. You failed miserably. It's a pretty uh, famous, I feel like, when you ask, like, what the, the like, if you're, like, what's an airborne infantry Everyone says the eighty second. I feel like it's yeah. I'm in the army. I think eighty second. So I don't. I don't. I mean, I know one seventy third. Right. Trying to think of anyone else. I'm sure there's other people out there that that jump on a plane and are in the infantry, but I don't know. 
Right. Everyone says 82nd. Yeah, everyone's, uh, everyone I know says 82nd Amboyne. I'm like, yeah. Um, so when you graduate from all those programs, like, well, then what? Did you, did you get deployed right away? Do you yeah, like so a, a workup and all that stuff? So I went to, uh, went to my unit, and um, my team was actually deployed in Iraq when I showed up there. So I, uh, I hopped on with another team and did some mini train-up. And, and, like, just in perspective, like, I'm surprised I could walk in a straight line at that point. Like, I knew absolutely nothing. Right. Nothing. Uh, flew out to Iraq in 2006 uh, at 20. I think I turned 21 in Iraq the first time. And uh, basically met my team. Was in Iraq for a little while, then came back and went to the uh, the USA Sox Mountaineering course, the Master Mountaineering course. Mountaineering course. Yeah, that was on a mountain team. So every team, uh, if you look at an SF company, there are some skills or some teams that have specialties. Uh, the names change all the time, and their duties and responsibilities change all the time. But usually, there is always a halo team and a mountain team for every company. And I was on the mountain team initially. So you're you, one of the specialty skills you have is, you know, scuba or mountaineering or or something, um, and you know that that was ours. So, and you're con- I mean that you're constantly being trained on different things, right? Yeah. So just because I'm a weapons guy, I can do medicine. I can run a radio. I can blow stuff up. I can build stuff. There's tons of cross training all the time. You have to. So the idea is that you have a you have a specialist in it that is an expert, so to speak, uh, and they're able to train the rest of the team on it so that the team is completely, every guy can do everything, and that's the way it really ends up being. Um, and then you, you're constantly expanding your skill sets. So, you know, jump stuff, halo stuff, scuba stuff, uh, mare ops or maritime operations, you know, zodiac work, kayak work, um, you know, mountaineering stuff, uh, fast roping, fries and spies, and, and all sorts of other stuff. You, you're constantly doing training, always trying to improve your your capabilities as a team. And what you're trying to do is you're making yourself as marketable as possible to the commander. So if he's got a mission, um, you know, you want to be able to raise your hand and say, "Yeah, we can do it because of X, Y, and Z," and right. not because I said so, but because hey, last week we did this training, right? Or hey, I speak this language, send us here. Uh, so it's it's got to be relatively objective and backed up by training so that's why we try and expand it as much as possible be as versatile as possible yeah i mean yeah. You, you you want to work you want to be as marketable as possible not necessarily for your commander because your commander knows you personally and, and you know it's a very very small unit sf as a whole is very very small um but the you know the general who runs the entire continent doesn't know you from anyone right so you know, as you work your way up, your company commander, your battalion commander, they need to be able to brief your capabilities, and it needs to be backed up by fact. <laughs> no, that's why we do it. So, uh, when you're, um, I mean, can you can you talk about what it's like being being in country, like what you what you do, like your day to day, and and just like going on missions and and that kind of stuff. Completely depends on the country and what you're doing, what the mission is. So, uh, been to Iraq a couple of times, uh, been to Africa a couple of times, been all over Asia. Um, it really just depends what you're doing, who you're working with, and um, you know what the mission is. So, 
usually, I guess, uh, you can find yourself living uh, isol- relatively isolated with your team or your counterparts. Um, and then your your typical day is what you make it. You know, you're you're in charge of of yourselves. Really, no one's going to tell you when to do anything. So the team runs its own business. You know, you make your own hours, you make your own training, you 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 gather your own intel, you make your own missions. No one tell, no one gives you a mission. You know, an actual what you're thinking of a mission as far as like a daily. Hey, go do this. We do that. So we develop our own stuff and, and we run our own program pretty much. So you, you, I mean, you're basically sent there like with an overall goal, but you you fill in all the blanks to get to that goal. Yeah. So a typical, let's just take Iraq for example. A typical, um, you know, mission so to speak would be, hey, you team whatever, go work with these Iraqi counterparts, Iraqi special operations, in this region to, um, get rid of bad guys and make it a safer, nicer place. Go. <laughs> yeah. That, that's what the mission is. However you see fit. Yeah, exactly. So you basically, you go and you, you link up with your counterparts and, uh, you know, it's one of the things that sets us apart from the other special operations units is we often work with other mm-hmm. host nation folks and, uh, we speak their language and we, we know they're, you know, culturally sensitive, so to speak. So other units, we won't name any names, would, would sort of really drag America with them, whereas I will leave America back here. I will adopt whatever it is that's going on over there. Hmm. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll work out. We'll work with them. We'll, we'll bro out, we'll do the handshake. We'll build rapport. We'll train them, and we'll go with them uh, to go do stuff. So, well, I guess um, I'm interested in the whole, uh, like, Leaving America here and picking up their culture, like what what are what are some things that you do to make sure that that happens smoothly? Like what typically, I mean, I guess I'm not being very uh, articulate in my question. Um, like what does that involve? What is that like picking up their culture? What are the things that you immediately think about doing when? T- well, so one of the things you have to remember when you go overseas is that you are uh, a guest in their country. Uh, this isn't World War II. You didn't jump out and occupy this place by force. You're there to make it better, and you're really there because of a SOFA agreement, status of forces agreement. Um, so you, you can't step on your dick. You, you can't be the ugly American uh, for a couple reasons. Uh, I'll, I'll use the Philippines as an example. Um, we were on a relatively isolated mountaintop in the Philippines, way, way down south, uh, where all the Islamic extremists are. And it was a bad, bad area, but it's not, it's not like Iraq bad. It would be dangerous, but it, it, you know, there's not really any shooting going on. There could be if you're in the wrong spot of town or if you got caught by yourself or something like that. But um, you've got 10 dudes in the middle of nowhere in the jungle. Uh, SF guy or not, if you get outnumbered in a bad way, it's not going to work out for you. 10 dudes is only 10 dudes. You get surrounded by you know, 50 or 100, bad, bad times. So your ability to really uh, build rapport with the locals around you is incredibly important for your security. So we had done a very good job of providing oh, work for the locals and just being nice people, going down, interacting with them, eating with them, uh, you know, sharing information, sharing food, sharing stories, et cetera. And they would tell us all the time, hey, there's reports of bad guys moving 
west to east, you know, a click north from here. Hey, thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Right. Uh, so we adjust our posture as, as necessary based on that. But if we had come in as an ugly American and sat up in our mountaintop eating popcorn and watching movies and ignoring everyone and doing whatever we wanted to, we would never get that information. Right. And it's a security concern because you only have 10 guys. So, uh, you know, in the Philippines, I ate a lot of bat, like the thing that flaps at night. Uh, <laughs> I ate dog. Uh, I wore funny clothing. I did weird stuff over there. Um, all in the name of building rapport. Right. And it's great because it takes you out of your comfort zone and you learn a lot about yourself. You learn, you learn a lot about other cultures. Um, you're able to help people out and uh, it, it works out for everyone. Um, but I really like it because it, it really pushes boundaries. Uh, you do things that you never thought you'd be able to do. Um, makes you better. You know, you leave a better mark on uh, the place you've been. Right. It's kind of, I mean, it's it's odd. I don't know. Uh, I grew up, so my dad's Navy. I grew up hearing the term Philippines. Philippines. I think he was stationed there at one point. Subic uh, Bay. Was that? Subic Bay. Yeah, he was a CB. So... I grew up hearing the term Philippines. I know my grandfather was stationed there at one point. My grandmother lived there with him. So there was, there's been American military presence in the Philippines for, well, since World War II, right? Yeah, long time. Um, I find it interesting that you would have to go in uh, as an Army SF group to to combat down there when there's been an American military presence for a very long time. That, that entire military presence is way up north in Manila. Okay, Manila where, Bay, yeah. Where we were was may as well have been another universe. Okay. Way down south where no American goes unless you're in special operations. So that's why. So it's just isolation. Completely isolated. It's an island. It's a small island. You can drive across it lengthwise in 45 minutes. Okay. Uh, but no American goes there unless you're in special operations. So, you know, they, they're they're isolated from the world. No one cares about them. So that's why it's it's so important. And and they're they don't speak... Uh, Tagalog, they usually speak Tausug, and they're uh, they're Muslims. Whereas the other, you know, ninety percent of I th- don't quote me on that, but the majority of Filipinos are Christian. So it's, it's very very different down there. Yeah, it's just different. So the navy, yeah, the navy. No, no, none of those guys go south of Manila. It's all you know, they stay up there and do their thing up there. But where we were was way way down south. Okay. Yeah, the I mean, like that that whole island chain system is just. I mean, like we found out in World War Two. It's huge. Like a, it's it's a huge, huge like island system, and shit can go bad pretty fast. Yeah. Um, I remember he- listening to like or reading about World War Two and just like Japanese occupation of that and all the fighting that we did just to get those islands. Uh, it's insane, absolutely insane. Um. What does bat taste like? It's actually not bad. <laughs> um, those guys would bring it to me. Uh, is it like the flying fox bat? The like really, really big yeah, one? They're looks like a, yeah, they're huge. They're huge. A um, fruit bat. Yeah, I've got a photo of me and another team guy holding it wingspan to wingspan. There's a Filipino guy in the middle. So that's, you can, you know, two of me plus a small Filipino dude. Jesus. Wide. Um, it's, it's, it's fine. It tastes like, I don't know, rabbit or chicken or something. Dog was terrible. Dog was gross. Um, oh, I don't know if I could do that. Yeah. yeah. When in Rome, but you know, we, we used to, instead of staying out, staying in your team house, we used to go out at night and we'd go into their, their hooches or whatever and hang out with them. 
and you're eating what they're eating. So, I mean, sometimes you'd bring them American stuff and they'd like it or not like it, but they're always going to offer you stuff and, you know, very rude to not eat it. So if, if it wasn't going to kill me, I would eat it. So they're relatively untouched by any kind of Western, I mean, there's well, zero Western influence. No, I mean, no, not zero, but like a very, very low Western it's, influence. It's us. It's, it's us down there. That's, yeah. that's Western influence. I mean, they have TV and um, cell phones and stuff like that, but it's, you know, there's no other real, there's no tourism. There's nothing like that down there. Yeah. How long ago was this? That was 2007. So 2007. I spent about uh, eight months down there. And I sp- was speaking Tagalog for most of it because some of the guys would understand uh, Tagalog as well. They, they mostly sp- spoke Taosug. But uh, some of them would understand Tagalog and be able to translate. So, so you mentioned the reason they were there. Well, they didn't really mention, but it said that there was um, Islamic extremists there. Yeah. So Abu Sayyaf groups down there, and then the um, MLF and MNLF, the Moro uh, something Liberation Front, Moro Islamic Liberation Front. So and they're still current down there. In fact, they just recently beheaded someone. Forget who. But, yeah, it's still a big, big problem. In fact, they just recently pledged allegiance to ISIS. Awesome. I guess, well, that was, like, my question. I'm so confused. Is like, um, so uh, would you say that the – dreaming over there. <laughs> uh, would you say, like, that the, the, the main – like, has Islamic extremists or the, like – has that always been an issue since you've been in the military? Is that like your what was your main? Yeah, so uh, for me, it was always it was the GWAT, right? <laughs> Global War on Terror, which has gone away, uh, but it was the the GWAT, so to speak. Uh, so we were always fighting um, extremists, so to speak, and uh, basically a very very diluted, watered down version of what's going on in the Philippines is lots of Islamic extremist terrorism down way south. Um, and up north, it's all Christian and very much separate. So what we were doing was advising and training the Filipino Special Operations Forces to go problem-solve. We weren't going to problem-solve. We were advising them to go problem-solve their own issues. Um, so we would train, advise, and assist, and sometimes accompany, to go do stuff. Uh, so that's what we were doing down there. I have like, and we don't have to talk about this if you don't like want to even comment on it. But I'm, the, you're talking about this, and I have so many questions about like, um, like how, like why do you end up there? Like why do people like call you and say, hey, we need help, and you end up there, or do you just go? I, I don't like what's the process for Wait, being. What? You know Wait, what I mean? Did like, just, did just come up on the radar, be like, oh, we need to go over there. Right? Like, is there like. No, so one of the things about SF is we are not a uh, QRF or a quick reactionary force. So the 82nd, a uh, couple of the units, you know, they can get a phone call in the middle of the night, be like, hey, pack your shit, get here quickly, here's why. Um, that will never happen to us, even active duty, uh, because all of our stuff is planned well in advance. Um, most of the places now, I mean, we are in the better part of 90 countries like, whoa, we've only been to Iraq and Afghanistan and a couple other places. No, we're in 90 countries uh, doing stuff. Um, either solving problems be- before they come problems, uh, monitoring the situation, influencing the situation, uh, doing all sorts of you know shady, shady SF stuff to keep problems from becoming bigger problems. Um, but f- for the most part, we are always replacing one another. 
So we're there. We've been there. You know, you've got months and months and months to plan what you're going to do. You're in constant contact with the guys that are on the ground, the other SF guys that you're ripping out or relief in place with. Right. So the the where do you go and why that's that's determined at you know SOCOM levels, uh, and then they basically distro out missions based on you know your unit's capabilities. For instance, we had seals down in uh, on the beach on the island. And they were supposed to be working with the uh, Phil Navy, the, the Philippine you know, Navy Special Operations guys. Well, we went down there one time, and these dickheads were wakeboarding behind the Zodiac <laughs> and having a barbecue on the beach. We roll in after you know patrolling, walking through the jungle, all sweaty and gross and pissed off, to have these guys be like, what's up, brah? What's going on, guys? How's it going, man? Cool, California kid. Uh, what are you, are you guys doing any work here? No? Oh, that's cool. All right, whatever. Um, so, yeah, those, that's, those are seals for you. <laughs> wake warning on Zodiacs. Um, you, you mentioned... You mentioned uh, the, like, How do you cu- get a wakeboard? <laughs> tax, taxpayer dollars ship their fucking wakeboard over. They probably label this mission essential equipment. I'm like, we do the same shit, so I'm really can't really talk but yeah we get stuff over all the time um so so you mentioned uh being the difference like being a qrf but like and not mentioning like the the difference between being a qrf and being an sf and i think i mean like in i know like you go into you literally go into isolation before you get deployed right sometimes sometimes yeah so it's a it's much more deliberate uh when we go and do things um Lots and lots of planning. I think one of the things that separates us from a lot of the other guys is contingency planning. So, um, yeah, this is a very, very crude example, but you gave us a mission and someone else a mission, they may just sort of impromptu, you know, quickly plan it, and then all contingencies be damned. We'll, we'll just flex, right? We'll just figure it out at the time. Whereas we would sit there and actually say, well, what happens if this happens? What are we going to do? What does that look like? And what's our pace plan? Pace being an acronym for primary, alternate, contingency, and emergency. So you've got a pace plan for communications. So if your radio breaks, what's your alternate? What's well, a sat phone? Okay, if your sat phone breaks, what's your alternate? It's a local cell phone. If your local cell phone breaks, what is it? It's a runner, or we'll, we'll drive and communicate. Lots of guys don't plan to that level. And we, we have a pace plan for everything we do. Right. So on infill, to go to the target. All right, we're going to fly in. What happens if we can't fly? We'll drive in. What happens if the road's blocked? We'll drive this way. What happens if that doesn't work? We'll walk in. Right. So, But we plan this out, and it's written down and briefed to all the guys so that everyone knows what it is. A lot of guys don't do that. So isolation, or, or we'll just call it planning, is one of the things that separates us from a lot of the other guys out there. Lots of planning. What are the shenanigans that happen in SF groups? Cause, oh, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> to to just stray away from from like some of the serious stuff like Rid- what what are some of the shenanigans that just happened between you guys ridiculous ridiculous <laughs> shit well it's 10 guys together Re- all the time right so you're like ridiculous shit yeah yeah um yeah we we are um we are we are known for uh, getting comfortable comfortable if we if we can so even though we may start in like a bamboo house by the end of the deployment, we've got like, you know, 
some marble accents and some other things. <laughs> we're eating like five course meals and uh, we, we do, we do our best to, to live well. Um, and we have a lot of fun. So the, the age old um, mantra of, uh, you know, work hard, play hard. I swear to God, that's written about us. I don't, I've never seen anyone play harder <laughs> <laughs> or work harder for that matter. But yeah, we, uh, we do a good job of, of blowing off steam. Um, be it with uh, booze, parties, explosives, guns, something. Some, something happens that's, that's fun. What kind of things have you blown up? Uh, well, I'll give you an example. First trip to, uh, to Africa, we had some extra ammo that we didn't want to shoot, and we couldn't ship it back, so we had the uh, great idea to, to blow it up, which sounds awesome. Um, so we're like, hey, Charlie, so you guys are you guys are demo guys. Let's uh, let's get rid of this stuff. They're like, oh yeah, we'll we'll take care of it, no problem. So they douse it with diesel, and they basically build what's known as a ladder charge. So it's basically a bunch of C four that's uh, intertwined with that cord and sits on top of it. And C four is supposed to be a, a cutting charge. It's not a tamping charge. Um, so long story short, we 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 go back and we we use MDI, which is instantaneous uh, initiating system. Huge explosion, you know, fireworks. Ooh, wow, wow, look at that. And uh, we start to walk up, me and two other guys start to walk up towards it, and we start to hear uh, popping, like popcorn. We're like, yeah, it's really weird. The rounds are going on. We're, we're, <laughs> we're still about 50 meters away. And I hear one, and, and mind you, it's not out of a rifle, so it's, it's just tumbling, so it makes a very distinct sort of noise. Well, we hear one go by us closely and it sounds like Phew! like hey uh hey todd <laughs> hey bro uh i think we didn't really destroy all the rounds i think they're just cooking off right now so we decide at that very moment because another couple come whizzing past us to basically haul ass back to the truck <laughs> and we get behind the truck just in time before like a lot of them go off and this is the middle of absolutely nowhere africa so it's it's safe uh, otherwise we wouldn't have done it but we sat there for a solid 30 minutes uh, trying not to get shot at by our own ammo <laughs> stash, uh, while, while it cooked off. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's scratching the surface of the, uh, the shenanigans. But, yeah, that, that shit happens all the time. <laughs> that's hilarious. <laughs> now, um, Sitting down, Derek being uh, a black belt in jujitsu. Uh, speaking of like hand-to-hand combat and all that stuff, like how what is uh, what's the training on that with with you guys? So Just we getting into that a little bit. So we do uh, the Modern Army Combatives Program, MACP. MACP. Yeah, MACP. So we do MACP, and there's a couple levels, and it's good stuff. Uh, it's simple, very simple, sort of watered down, uh, you know, jujitsu. But you do it with armor on, you do it with guns, you sprinkle some reality on it. So you're using a, you know, like a Sims gun or a Sims knife to talk about priorities so you don't get wrapped up too much in the BJJ aspect of things and you don't lose sight of the focus of, hey, if you're doing this, things have gone horribly wrong. It's not a fucking competition. Um, and the other thing that you can do is the SOCP, which is a special operations combatives program, which is a little bit more mission specific. Uh, Meaning that there's not as much ground stuff. I mean, there's ground stuff, but it's it's all in kit. Uh, you you do a lot with um, you know knives and, and a, a lot of close quarter stuff uh, to try and avoid going to the ground to begin with. So uh, those are some options available to you. And then you maintain it at the team level. 
So I know for, for PT, we'll, we'll often do, um, you know, bouts of boxing uh, as, a, as a workout. So we'll work on that. Uh, the guy who's getting his doctorate is a Golden Gloves boxer on the, on the team. So he does a lot of that stuff for us as well. And uh, my junior's actually been doing some form of martial arts since I think he was two or one or six months or something. He's uh, he's old. He's the oldest guy on the team. He can beat all of us up. So between those two, we uh, we, we keep it pretty current the best we can. I, th- I think like th- I think that there's a huge misconception with Hollywood versus reality, where it's like you get these Hollywood movies where it's like, oh my god, the guy used to be a he's an army ranger, and he can like Con pull off like <laughs> like he just pull off some like <laughs> you say, what Con Air Con Air that, that guy wasn't an army ranger at the beginning yeah, yeah. and he it, fucking it's, drop it's kick like that guy guy was first ranger battalion. Like and and they're, they're like all ninjas. Like everybody that goes through and, and it's like this Hollywood misconception where it's like everybody that goes into the military comes out of it being a complete ninja well, and can I just think, devastate. So take it a step further. Take it, like go, I think fighting in general is a huge Hollywood misconception. We've well, been talking about that all day. Go, I mean, go go find Becky in downtown wherever we are right now and be like, hey, you think cops can shoot? And she's gonna say, yeah, cops can shoot. It's their job. Like the public thinks that police officers can shoot very very well. Um, the same way they think the military can shoot very, very well. I'm here to tell you that the military can't shoot well at all. They're pretty terrible at it, actually. Um, the same way that, you know, you think you're an SF guy, you must be able to fight. <laughs> wrong. Wrong. Donald Trump, wrong. Wrong. Uh, <laughs> it, <laughs> it, it's, it's complete bullshit. Uh, you can only fight if you actually fight. Uh, so... That that whole thing is crazy to me. Where um, you know, the, if you're an SF guy, really to me that that means a couple things. It means that uh, you've got good resolve. You won't quit. It means that you're pretty smart and you're pretty adaptive and you're resourceful, and that you're uh, you're gonna you're gonna solve the problem, uh, whatever that is. It doesn't mean you can shoot. It doesn't mean you can fight. It doesn't mean you can do dick other than what we just talked about. Uh, if you can do that, it's because you've had training in it. But it's not inherent to complete the Q course and be fucking be able to beat dudes up at the bar. That's not going to happen. I would, I mean, I have some experience dealing with this, and I would say that that it's actually um, with no disrespect or whatever, but it's almost shocking how. Um, and I, I'm like, I mean, got to word this correct because I have nothing but fuck that. Throw it out there, man. Ah, uh, we also have thick skin, by the way. Right. Well, I mean, I, I, I'm, it's the same thing with like police officers and things like that. Like, I understand that there's like a bunch of other things you need to learn how Scott, to do. Scott, look at him trying to pat it. <laughs> but, but it, spit it, it out there, man. It's, it's shocking how little. I do have two guns on me right now. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's it's shocking how little people like people of either law enforcement, or military know about hand to hand combat. Sometimes there's no doubt, and it's, and I would contri- I would say that the reason for that is because, uh, well, at least for us. Like I said in the very beginning, it's an incredibly multifaceted job. There is so right. much stuff we're supposed to be good at. I mean, the list would stretch from here to the moon. The right. shit that I'm supposed to be good at or right. like really excellent at. And uh, trying to maintain all of those, there's not enough hours in the day. Right. That's just the bottom line. And and guys, there's guys, you know, Tim Kennedy's a good example, SF guy that, that fights, and he, and he always has fought. And there's a couple guys like Tim going through the Q course 
I remember that were into it. They fought competitively, right. and they were they were they were good dudes. They were good fighters, but that's what they did. Right, and they were probably not as good at something else that other guys were doing. So maybe they weren't good shots, or maybe they weren't PT studs, or maybe they weren't you know smarter, formally educated because they were focusing. I mean, you only have X amount of time, uh, and if you're going to do it with uh, combatives or hand to hand or, or BJJ or something, then you're going to be good at it, but you're going to be lacking in something else. And conversely, if if I focus on shooting all the time. Uh, then I'm going to get my dick handed to me in next fight, right? Right, right, yeah. No, I mean, that's kind of what I was getting at. I was like, I understand why. But, uh, I mean, I've trained with, uh, you know, other Army SF guys, Navy SEALs, uh, you know, Army Rangers and things like that. And it's always, it's one of those things. I mean, and that's probably why they come trained because they understand that there's some kind of deficiency there. But it's, uh, I mean, just some simple rudimentary things. Like, And hopefully when they leave, I've given them some kind of, like, yeah keep this 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 in mind and it makes a huge difference but it's always like glaring you know uh just the same simple things over and over again the other thing i find and it's um talked about um with you know the the combatives program for military you know i've had some experience with the um the the combatives course the army combatives course and uh it's um it is very geared towards uh you know get to your weapon and end the fight quickly or whatever. But I think yep. a lot of times too is, and I find that with like, even just people like, so I've, we have black belts, you know, and sometimes we'll do like, we're rolling around and we'll throw us like a, a sim knife on the ground or a gun or whatever. And everyone gets so fixated on that weapon that they forget about all their other training. You know what I mean? So like one of the things that I think about is instead of me trying to get to this weapon, how do I stop this other person from getting to the weapon and end the fight the way I know how? You know what I mean? And I feel like the, the advent of throwing foreign objects into it throws a whole... Like someone could be a world champion black belt and that goes right out the window when lose, fu- right. lose their damn mind. Right. Like, oh my God, it's a knife. You know what I mean? And like, granted, that's a natural reaction, but sometimes you'd be like, all right, how do I just stop this guy from eating the knife? You know what I mean? Instead of yeah. me, like, how do I get my hands on the knife? You know what I mean? Like that would be the one glaring aspect I see from a lot of like, is like even police officers. Like they're like, yeah. how do I get to my taser, my mace, my pepper? I'm like, well, fucking stop worrying about that shit and hold this guy down and strangle him unconscious. Yeah, no doubt. And, and from personal experience, I can say from rolling, um, I've had it both ways where I get so focused on the knife or the gun, I'm like getting choked out. Right. Or the other guy is so focused, um, on not getting the knife, they actually get it and stitch him up with the knife or the gun. Mm. So it, it's really, you know, you have to have both. You have to be, you right. know, pretty, I would think, at a pretty high level to process information that quickly under that sort of artificial stress to make the right decision. Right. And at, and at my level, guys like me, uh, I can roll the dice, like how it works. And, you know, it's it's going to vary. Right. Um, but. Yeah. I mean, I, I try to tell those guys, be aware it's there. And then you have to make a decision if you're going to go for it or you have to stop the other person from getting it. You know what I mean? That's usually... And if you're not... And then the other part of it is if you're not trained in fire and, and using a firearm or using using a knife, then your main objection should be to not allow the other person to get it because in your hands, it's practically useless. Fuck that. How hard is it? Just pull the trigger. <laughs> that was sarcasm. <laughs> This all, sarcasm, big time. This, this all brings up uh, uh, something that we've talked about a lot, and that's becoming uh, there's a lot of specialists running around, not enough generalists. And it sounds like the Army SF is like, yes, you have specialists like yourself, 
uh, but you're also trained in everything else. So yeah, you're a specialist, but you're also a generalist at the same time. And like, which I think is just like, it, it's hugely important to so many, I mean, to, to everybody, even like right down to like, like police, uh, policemen, like they should be less specialized and more generalist. I mean, like, yeah, you can, you can shoot a quarter size hole at 25 yards, but, um, how good are you at diffusing the situation verbally? That's a strange debate though. I feel like, and I mean, obviously everyone can weigh in or whatever, but I feel like, um, and I know some really good cops out there, especially at the local law enforcement level. I feel like they almost aren't specialized enough. They're, they're too general. And I understand. You have to, like like you said, like you go from being, you know, someone who's stopping someone and doing routine traffic stops to, you know, a family counselor when you show up for a domestic dispute to, uh, you know, helping a lost kid. You know, like you have to run the gamut of dealing with a spectrum of people in a 12 hour shift or whatever your shift is or whatever. But I feel like, uh, like there should be, I mean, how many people are on a SWAT team in a local law enforcement, you know, especially around here. It's the SWAT team is for the County. There's three people from each office on that SWAT team. No, fuck that. All these people should be able to, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like, I feel like they need to be more specialists. Personally, I got, I got a quote for you. So this is by a dude named Robert A. Hyleen, and uh, it's one I've referenced a couple times before. It says a human being should be able to change a diaper, plan an invasion, butcher a hog, con a ship, design a building, write a sonnet, balance accounts, build a wall, set a bone, comfort the dying, take orders, give orders, cooperate, act alone, solve equations, analyze a new problem, pitch manure, program a computer, cook a tasty meal, fight efficiently, die gallantly. Specialization is for insects. Not to contradict you. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, as an SF guy, if you get too specialized, you're not an SF guy anymore. By nature, um, you should be able to drop uh, an ODA off in the middle of nowhere with a vape. Now, this is for SF guys not cops, which I kind of agree with you on the cop thing. But if I get too specialized in something, it means I'm not capable in something else. So I need to be able to go. A good SF guy can blend in into a biker bar or a church, like within a five-minute span. Your personality, your demeanor, you got to be able to wear a lot of hats um, because you're, you change. You know, you could find yourself, last trip I was working with the ambassador. As a guy... You know, my age, my position, working hand-in-hand with the number one dude in the country. So my demeanor briefing the ambassador was a little bit more formal than the average uh, Sam. (laughs) (laughs) Conversely, when I flew out to go see the team out in the middle of nowhere, uh, the the swashbuckling pirate Sam was in full effect. So so I I understand what you're saying, but it's almost, I feel like, the, the thing about SF, I mean, it's, what does it stand for? Special, special Forces. You know what I mean? So it's like you're not, you're almost a specialist at not being a specialist. You know what I mean? Very true. That's, That's like, a good way of putting it. You, you, and being, uh, uh, you're required to be more than proficient 
at a lot of things. And I feel like there are a lot of people who are not proficient at a lot of things. You know what I mean? Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> you're, I, I, you're a specialist at not being proficient. I have a laundry <laughs> list of things that I'm not very good at that I'm trying to improve on. So right, right. I, I think we all do. Right. And I, but I, the other, I think the other aspect of that, I mean, we're getting off into like, you know, cultural tangents or whatever, which is fine. But I feel like um, a lot of people just are, um, happy with status quo you know what i mean where you are aware enough that you're making strides to improve on a lot of things at once you know what i mean a lot, a lot of people aren't even making strides to improve on anything comforts i think one of the worst things you can have uh especially as an american male uh you know a young able-bodied american male if you're comfortable uh, that's bad uh, that's that's the death of exploration you're not going to find satisfaction is the death of desire buddy you're not going to find uh things about yourself some of the most um interesting moments i've had have been at the lowest points or the craziest points uh, in my career and uh you find out a lot about yourself and about the guys you're around when that happens and you'll never find that about yourself or anyone else if you're sitting there on your couch in fucking comfortville new england it's just not gonna happen I couldn't agree with that more. If you're showing up at Walmart at 8 o'clock at night wearing Kenny South Park pants, getting, like, ice cream for so you can go home and play video games. And Re- you're, and reevaluate you're twi- your life. And you're 25. <laughs> and, I prob- and, A, I probably and, hate you. <laughs> B, you suck. C, reevaluate what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've I've been there. I, I know I personally have been there where I like I got comfortable and it's like and and it was like one of those things where it's like this aha moment where it's like I need to snap shit out, snap out of it because I'm getting like completely, I'm getting lazy, I'm getting complacent, and and that's like that's a horrible thing. You got to do weird stuff. Got to get out there and do weird stuff, right? Lafitte's. 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 <laughs> it's a battle cry for doing weird shit. <laughs> I thought so. Funny story about that story is uh, recently Scott and I went to the Highland Games and we met Matt Vincent, who's from New Orleans, who's like one of the number one Highland Games athletes in the world. Talking about that fucking weird experience and the strange thing that is the Highland Games. But Scott mentioned that you guys went into Lafitte's and you should have seen the look on his face. He was like, oh, haven't done that in a while. (laughs) Scott, have have you talked about the Lafitte's? Experience? Uh, I don't know if I have talked about it. I, th- I think I, I I think I mentioned it a couple of times. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, uh, when I was down in New Orleans, for, Mr. December uh, for work. That's what we call Scott on the podcast, Mr. December. I feel like I feel like Sam had a good time that that trip. <laughs> Some parts, yes. <laughs> there, there's Sam, nothing like Sam, Sam got his dance on. About Sam, 5 a.m. Sam went on autopilot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there was a point in the night where it's just like all of a sudden uh, Sam was out in the dance floor by himself dancing with a Red Bull and vodka in his hands. And I heard the greatest quote about um, Red Bull and vodka. It's uh, Red Bull and vodka is not a beverage. It's just an excuse to stay up long enough to make an ass of yourself. <laughs> Uh, Scott, I'm going to go out on a, a limb here. It's a little throwback. 
So there was this incredible uh, cover band there. And I rarely say I rarely say a cover band is great because uh, a lot of it's it's. Oh, I don't come know. on, cover bands my favorite. Oh, These guys man. killed it. Not there. I'm. <laughs> they they were really really good. They actually were really good. And like being a cover band down in New Orleans is, I mean, like it's a legit art form. I mean, they These they are very they good. put in a lot of time being really good. Yeah. Up here, it's just like, I mean, you could probably you can probably attest to it. It's a gig. It's like. Cover it's work for lazy listeners. <laughs> Boom! Knowledge drop. <laughs> I, uh, I fucking love cover bands. Dark's <laughs> 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 like fuck you guys. Um, but uh, it, yeah, it was uh, it was an entertaining night, and I well, mean, it, let's it go started ba- off with the feats. Well, let's go back to why this is important. Talking about comfort, Scott, Grandpa Scott over here. <laughs> flies down to New Orleans and he wants to go to bed at like 6.30 p.m. And Sam, to his credit, kept it real. I was like, nope, we're in New Orleans. When's the last time we were here? It was, I don't know, probably when you were, whenever. I had never been, so I said, no, we're going to go get weird. We're going to go get uncomfortable, check it out. And he starts to complain, oh, you know, got to get up early, got to get up early. I was hesitant because there was a 7 o'clock flight coming after the night. Boo fucking who. (laughs) You don't tell the SF guy you're not going. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, your flight could have been at 5. We still would have made it. Like, like we were going to do it. So anyway, I used my powers to convince him to go out. And I think I said we'd just go out for one. Well, that turned into... Probably 100. 100, yeah. (laughs) No, no, no. It started off at one, and then... Sam gets a bright idea that oh. we're going to have one at every bar all the way down. Uh, what's the street? I can't remember the name of the street again. Bourbon. Bourbon Street. That, one of the most famous streets in America, of course. How'd you forget that? Because uh, I have Swiss cheese memory. We had to change the plan to one every block quickly. Yeah, yeah we didn't <laughs> We're going to lose that, that battle. Yeah. It became this little game of where we'd be walking down the middle of the street and then it'd be like, all right, it's your turn to decide which bar we're going into the street. And one street, it'd be like this very like low-key bar, usually my street, because I like low-key things. Boring. Eh, there's nothing to do with a good dive bar, though. <laughs> I've gotten to many fights in a dive bar and not get thrown out. It's been, awesome. It's awesome. And, and, and I mean, found some interesting places. Uh, the Swamp. <laughs> the Swamp. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, man. There was a shot girl that came up to Yeah, there was a shot girl that came up to us. I have the Not greatest. Not sure which I have drug the greatest, she was on, but I have the greatest drugs. shot girl story ever. I, I, I want whatever she was on <laughs> for next appointment. Pretty sure she didn't know her own name. So I was in Portland, Maine. At this bar, Ew. at this, no, it's fucking awesome. <laughs> and the story is why it's awesome. Uh, I love Portland. Portland's awesome. Um, if you're homeless, I was on the end. I was I was in this little bar that's no longer there anymore called Diggers, and I have been into fights What'd in there. What'd you say? Yeah, and not Jesus. thrown out. 2016. It's called Diggers, and uh, this girl came around, and she was clearly hammered with shots in those test tubes. And she was like, yeah, you guys want to do a shot? Want to do a shot? And my friend of mine's like, we'll do a shot if you do a shot. And she was like, all right. And took this test tube shot and put it to her lips like she was going to take it. And as soon as the alcohol touched her lips, she threw up back into the test tube. (laughs) And it 
pressurized and came back out all over her face and down her tits. It's amazing. <laughs> it was awesome. It's kind of chicky date. Like literally, like it like pressurized in that tube and yeah. came out at warp speed all over her face so and down gross. the front of her shirt. See, I, I, I would argue that that's attractive. That's a good trait. <laughs> and she was wearing like the, uh, um, like what is the fucking the beer made fucking like plaid skirt yeah. with like typical uh, right yeah, yeah. like low cut shirt with her fucking tits hanging out and it fucking went right back into her cleavage. Hates her dad so much. <laughs> wow. <laughs> like like out and in like warp speed. It was hilarious. It's awesome. So glad they didn't have it on us. <laughs> I'm upset it didn't. Legitimately, I would have lost it on top of her. I can't, nah. I can't handle puke. Really? Yeah. No, I, 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 get, I get sensitive on that stuff. I can pretty much handle anything. Oh. I think half of it's attractive. <laughs> <laughs> That's mostly because I have deep-rooted emotional issues. But <laughs> I've, I've met your wife, and I'm kind of reevaluating my thoughts about her now. <laughs> Please. My wife is nothing shy of a saint uh, to put up with uh, all the shit she has to deal with. She is, uh, yeah. An absolute saint. I've heard stories. I, I, I I've heard a couple that. stories. <laughs> and a few times we hung out. You ever see the photo of me uh, coming back after the wedding? Yeah. I'll have to dig it up. Uh, we're driving home from a wedding. Team guy. So the uh, medic at the time gets married. And this is a good example of SF guys doing SF things uh, stateside. So it's at a golf course, which was the first mistake. Because we promptly, it was an open bar, which is absolutely stupid to do with the team. <laughs> stupid. Both financially and, well, otherwise. So we start drinking heavily at like, I don't know, four. And we decided it'd be a good idea to go borrow the golf carts. Well, the golf carts are secured by and manned by like some 15 year old high school kids who are saying, you know, you need to be a member or you need to be golfing. And we just were like, no, 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 it's okay. We're like, no, you can't. We're like, no, 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 it's okay. We just get in the golf cart and drive away. <laughs> the kid's like, no, no, mister, you need to return it. We just drove off. And we uh, basically took a bunch of uh, beers and cocktails with us out on the, the uh, golf carts and drove around acting like hooligans. We had some races. Uh, fun was had. I think Rachel got on top of one of the uh, golf carts for a team photo. Um, two guys who weren't NSF, I have no idea who they were, at the wedding, had uh, girlfriends with them. Uh, we kidnapped them. <laughs> Volunt- I mean, they, they came with us voluntarily. <laughs> uh, actually, but it was funny because whenever we came back uh, after nearly rolling one of the golf carts, uh, the guys were standing there with their arms crossed at the parking lot when we got off, and we just sort of looked at them sheepishly and just walked away and let them deal with it. But they weren't happy that we kidnapped uh, the girls. Um, but we, we went back and we proceeded to get more and more um, intoxicated, as any good SF guy would. Uh, they called the wedding party up for a dance. I went up because I was already already smashed and thought I was in the wedding party, which I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> started, started to dance. Um, I, I apparently dirty danced to 50 Cent, uh, which is a specialty of mine. And fast forward to the end of the night, uh, I'm halfway into another universe, and I proceed to vomit outside my wife's uh, white car. Going home on 95 at about 85 miles an hour. <laughs> and there's a photo of me, which I'll dig up here, 
um, it, wearing a suit with a head out my window, with head out my window, um, and a vomit streak, uh, a racing a racing stripe, if you will, of vomit starting from the passenger door all the way to the taillight. <laughs> <laughs> and my wife tells me that on the way home, people were honking in support of me <laughs> and cheering as I was violently vomiting out the window on 95 going 85 miles an hour. Support your troops, people. Oh, <laughs> uh, there are so many stories like that. Now, uh, you actually have a story about a run-in with a famous person that was out, like in another universe. Oh. Marky Mark? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, me and Marky Mark uh, wrote out one time that uh, Mark Wahlberg was, it was the uh, the Lone Survivor uh, premiere. So Marcus Luttrell and Mark Wahlberg were in Boston to do like a private screening, the first one for Lone Survivor. And they wanted some uh, guys, local guys from SOCOM, so our unit got the call to go down there and support it. So we got all dressed up and uh, went down there, watched the movie, and then we went back to his mother's place, um, which is right across the street from Wahlburgers. I forget the name of it. And uh, basically, uh, Marcus Trell hung out with the, with the team there, and we had a good time. And then Mark showed up later on the, the evening, and he had uh, he had a couple of glasses of wine. Really nice guy, stand-up guy. But, uh, yeah, we, we had some good, uh, good times with him. And there's a photo of me and him uh, where he is um, – a little, a little inebriated. I'll, I'll zoom in here just for dramatic effect, but you can see it. Would you say that, that's him? Because we just told him that <laughs> <laughs> we had just told him that uh, we had met Tyson in uh, in the uh, in Vegas before our last trip to Iraq. He's like, "Oh, I know Mike." So he poses with his fist up like he's a boxer, and he's got a glass of wine in one hand, closed fist in the other, and uh, yeah. A combination of wine and bad timing for the photo, but he looks like he's uh, in another universe. <laughs> that time at Vegas was a good example, too, of uh, SF guys doing SF things. We were getting ready to go back to Iraq. 2011, we were in uh, Fort Bliss, Texas, which is may as well be Iraq. It's a terrible place. If you've ever been down there, it's horrible. Um we were getting ready to go, and we were sitting down at this really nice steakhouse. And it was one of those steakhouses where actually wild coyotes would come up to the window. It's in the middle of nowhere, about a half-hour drive away. And it's our team and another team sitting there. And we're kind of bullshit, and someone says, hey, we should go to Vegas. And we kind of laugh it off. We keep eating. And it's like 10 o'clock. It's getting late. So then it gets mentioned again, and our team sits there and says, well, why, why don't we go to Vegas? And we start thinking about it, going to our planning cycle. We're like, well, how would we do it? Well, we'll take a government van. So uh, we go back. We ask the major, say, hey, how do you feel about us going to Vegas for the night? And uh, oddly enough, he said, what's it going to sound like? Like, Tell me what the plan is. So we tell him that we're going to take the, uh, the van, drive straight to Vegas, which is, I don't know how long a drive, but it's a decent drive. And he says, yes. <laughs> we're shocked <laughs> at this point we've already half in the bag we got one guy that's sober because he doesn't drink so we rip all the seats out of the van we rip the mattresses off of our beds and the, the barracks and throw them in the van and we head to Vegas that night we go to fill up uh, in El Paso 
And uh, <laughs> this is how our trip started. We're out pumping gas, raiding the uh, gas station for fat kid chow and water and whatnot. And across the street, there's a club. And we hear uh, what can only be described very distinctly as nine mil pistol shots in, in uh, El Paso. And we're like, oh, that's weird. It sounds like shooting. Uh, seconds later, the place, everyone comes running out of the, the club. <laughs> and we're standing there. We just keep pumping gas. We're like, oh, it's disturbing. <laughs> and we're pumping gas. We're like, hey, let's let's go ahead and pump faster. Let's get out of here. A um, couple more shots, and then it stopped, and people were running out, going crazy, and we took off. Because the cops were on the way. We heard them. But that's how it started out. We drove straight through and uh, ended up in Vegas next morning, went to the, the Hoover Dam, stopped and saw it. We, uh, we had the major gave us basically better part of 24 hours. So we stopped. We uh, checked in the hotel, bought some clothes to get in places. But we had no real plan. Um, so we basically split up for two hours to explore Vegas. And then uh, we, uh, we reconvened for dinner. So we had purchased some clothing that would get us into some clubs. And, and mind you, we had no plan at all. Nothing. So very, very spontaneous. But because we're networked pretty well and we, we bro out a lot, we got a lot of people in different places, um, we got into Steve Wynn's brand new club called Surrender. And I remember distinctly walking past a line of painfully attractive women, like women that belong in TV land, like you don't think they really exist, like lots of them, and passing, they're waiting in a line to get into this place. And we get escorted a bunch of dudes by by the way no chicks with us right into the club and they looked at me like they wanted to <laughs> kill me <laughs> i'm just like, i was like oh my God, i'm sorry you should be here but i'm i'm going in and, you know <laughs> sorry keep waiting i'll see you in there <laughs> we went in we had a great time we uh naturally got uh table service and we were getting ready to go to iraq so we're like fucking whatever slap down some cards uh, about 13 grand later we left <laughs> <laughs> Every guy easily spent a thousand dollars. Great time, um, and we went to another place. Now, it starts to get fuzzy. Uh, we take a limo to the uh, to some club, some strip club. We were there for a little bit. It wasn't very good, uh, so we took a limo to another club. Kept drinking, and uh, we went to a place called Dre's. Um, ended up bumping into Mike Tyson, like no shit. Got a team photo with Mike Tyson. Uh, we're starting to think that this is like the hangover four at this point because a lot of weird shit's happening. And by this time, we've got an entourage with us, like random dudes, random people, random, like an old dude in a suit, uh, like random people just following us wherever we go. <laughs> and we always go and get like table service and we're just slapping down cards. So we went to Dre's, which is a, like the after hours place to go. And again, turns out that one of the guys we're with knows another guy from there. And he led us right through the front door. And this is like 3 a.m., 4 a.m. It's a huge line. We just bypass everything. And uh, we proceed to keep at it and uh, keep drinking. We left Dre's at 7 a.m. Absolutely, absolutely annihilated. My medic, who's now my boss, now my team sergeant, and I fought fist fight, like not maliciously, just fight like guys do, up and down the strip all the way back to the hotel. Um my team star at the time, who's now the sergeant major, um, also uh, in law enforcement, was trying to keep us from getting arrested and just like steering the chaos back to the hotel. <laughs> Medic tackled me into the, the foyer of a 7-Eleven as a guy's sweeping. The guy hits me with a broom, tells me to get out. <laughs> <laughs> get out, get out, get out. And uh, we fight all the way back. And uh, 
we basically crashed the hotel zero eight. I get woken up by guys uh, because they thought I had died. Apparently, I'd, I slept on the floor, and my senior Charlie walked in, didn't see me, and kicked me in the jaw so hard that it snapped my head back like that, and they thought they broke my neck. I didn't even wake up. I didn't feel it. <laughs> so they are like, oh, my God, you killed, you, you killed them. And uh, they woke me up, and I was like, no, I feel fine. <laughs> I feel great. Let's keep going. Um, we had a limited amount of time, so we went back to the Hoover Dam, took another team photo there. Uh, we all looked like hot messes. Just gross. And uh, we drove straight back, vomiting the whole way, and we were back 24 hours later for training. It was awesome. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. So uh, I think that might just be the uh, first installment of our our guest Sam (laughs) filling us in on, on the SF world and telling us all kinds of stories, and we'll get into even more next time. But, uh, yeah, I think that's a, that's a bit out about it for the day. Thank you for listening to Sharp Iron Society again. And uh, have a good one. Thank you for being on here. Anytime. <laughs>